Well, summary relief, we've come to the end of our rather intense but important series on roles and relationships, uh, and we're starting a new brief series now. Uh, the stuff we're talking about today, I would say, is more central and more important than anything we've looked at this term. Uh, so let's pray that God would help us to hear properly now. Loving Father, we pray that you would help us to think rightly about our relationship with you, and we pray that the gospel would deeply impact uh, every level of our thinking and feeling um, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just for a few weeks, we're doing a little series called The Great Game Changer. Um, basically, what that means is that um, I've selected uh, three significant uses of the word but in the New Testament, uh, where it expresses how Jesus, Jesus has completely changed everything for the believer. Uh, I was trying to think of a serious title with the word but in it, but they all sounded rude, so uh, <laughs> it's called The Great Game Changer. Um, Today we're looking at how Jesus has changed the game when it comes to how we can be righteous before God. That is, how we can be in the right with God. Uh, you can't get a more important topic than that. When we think about righteousness, we might think about being very good people. Uh, but often in the Bible, it, the word righteousness means more than just being somebody who does what's right. It means the status of being in the right particularly with God, having right standing. That's what it means to be righteous. Uh, if I ask two of my children to go and tidy their rooms and one of them goes and does it and the other one doesn't, then when I come and check, one of them is going to be in the right and the other one is going to be in the wrong. Uh, one will be righteous and the other will be guilty. They may or not, may not care about their status before me, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, one's righteous and one's guilty. Of course, the big question for every human being uh, is, where do we stand with God? Um, are we doing what he has asked us to do? Uh, what's going to happen when he comes to check? How can we have right standing with God? Um, most of you will have seen Crocodile Dundee, the movie, um, and you might remember Mick Dundee's answer to the question of how you can be right with God. He was asked whether he was afraid of dying. And he said, nah, I read the Bible once. You know, God and Jesus and all them apostles, well, they were all fishermen, uh, just like me. Yeah, straight to heaven for Mick Dundee. Yep, me and God, we'd be mates. So how can you be right with God? Ask Crocodile Dundee and he'll tell you, you'd be a lovable larrikin and you take up fishing and then God will understand you and you'll be mates. I mean, who wouldn't want to be mates with Crocodile Dundee, including God? But the thing is, of course, that's the movies where um, everyone loves the goodies and they go to heaven and everyone hates the baddies and they go to hell and it's all very black and white. But real life is far more complicated than that. In real life, even the most charming people have done awful things in their minds, if not in actuality. Uh, even th the most lovable people are selfish in their souls and they have guilt on their record. Uh, and so I'm talking about everybody here in this room as well as Crocodile Dundee. And God's not going to say uh, when he comes to check, well, don't worry, you're a lovable larrikin, straight to heaven for you. God's going to say, well, what about your sin? You can't drag all of that sin with you into my heaven, into my presence. I'm a holy God. Now, when pe many people realise that, and of course, we, we all kind of sense some of our sin, uh, certainly not all of it, but when many people realise it, that 
they might have a problem with God because of their sin, their response is trying to improve themselves. Okay, I might have a problem, I've got to get better. And so they try to get in the right with God by proving how good they, they can be. And they get religious, uh, they try to make sure that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, and so when the, the books are opened and there's their ledger in front of God, they'll say, see God, the good stuff slightly outweighs the bad, so you can call me a good person rather than a bad one. Uh, and so that becomes the game, to become righteous by living righteously. And of course, that's what many people assume that you're doing here this morning. You're here in church. Uh, you're doing the right thing. Um, we're trying to be good people, and surely God's going to reward that in the end. Uh, they assume that when we get to Judgment Day, our plan is to say, look, God, at all those Sunday mornings I sacrificed. It's so beautiful outside, and here I, there I was sitting in a church with all these other people. Um, so you've got, that has to count for something, God. Well, this passage has something to say about that approach to getting righteous. Uh, it says it doesn't work. Um, if that's why you're here, uh, there's a good reason for you to be here, but that's not it, being able to boast about it before God. So the first thing this passage talks about is the impossibility of self-made righteousness. It's impossible for any person to make themselves right with God, whether, as Paul says, they're a Gentile, a non-Jew, or even a religious Jew, one of God's old covenant people. Uh, it's impossible to make yourself right with God. That's the, th the thrust of the first few chapters of Romans. And the conclusion is there in chapter 3, verse 9, which wasn't read. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And he backs that up with a string of references from the Old Testament. Uh, verses 10 to 12, he talks about the breadth of human sinfulness. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one, says Paul. And then the depth of human sinfulness, verses 13 to 18, uh, from head to toe we are sinful, he describes. What comes out of our mouths shows the poison that's inside of us. Our feet leave trails of wreckage behind us. Our eyes only see things the way that we want to see them. There is no fear of God. He's quoting from the Old Testament as descriptions of sinful humanity here. Verse 19, he says, if that's the law's diagnosis of those under the law, uh, then those who don't even have the law must be even worse. And therefore, every mouth is silenced. None of us can claim righteousness. None of us can plead excuse. When we stand before God, all of our mouths will be shut. The whole world is accountable to God and guilty before him, verse 19. And then in verse 20, it's impossible to make yourself righteous by doing works of the law, that is proving how good you are. The law only makes us more conscious of our sin by showing us how high the bar really is if we read the law properly as Jesus did. So if the game is getting yourself into God's good books, then it is a game that you cannot possibly win, says Paul at this stage. People, of course, don't like to believe that. They like to think that anything is possible for human beings if we put our minds to it. Look at all the wonderful things we've done. Uh, when in 1961, JFK said that their aim was to put a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth within that decade, everybody, I'm not sure what they thought, I wasn't there, but I assume that everyone thought, you're joking. That sounds too hard. But incredibly, of course, it was achieved. And we think, wow, look at all the things we can do. 
People might think that getting ourselves to heaven is a similar goal. We'll be able to work this out if we really apply ourselves. It's audacious, sure, but it's achievable. If we really try not to sin and if we try really to be good and we educate everyone in ethics and morality, then uh, we can get there in the end. But of course, heaven is far more impossible than landing on the moon. If JFK had said, I'm going to land, we're going to land a person on the moon by training someone to flap their arms really hard, then that would be a little bit more like the game of getting ourselves to heaven. It isn't going to happen, it's impossible. And so, of course, this is a massive problem. Um, it's impossible for sinners to make themselves right with God. People, humanity, the people who live out there around us, are in a hole that they cannot get themselves out of. They are on the wrong side of God. They are facing his judgment. This is where the but uh, in verse 21 comes as such a relief. It says, but God has changed the game. And the paragraph that follows, uh, which Stephen read for us, is hugely important. It, it resolves the problem that's been set up in Romans so far. It's the foundation of everything Paul says in the rest of the letter to the Romans and the reformer Martin Luther saw this paragraph as the centre of the whole Bible because it's, what's, it's what the whole Bible is driving towards and it's what the whole Christian ethic is based on. So it describes the availability of God's righteousness in the first few verses. Uh, verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So this is a totally different game. This is not self-made righteousness. It's the righteousness of God. It doesn't begin with our goodness by which we impress God. It begins with his goodness and it comes to us as a gift. Martin Luther described it as an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that doesn't come from around here. Uh, it's certainly not from within us and our efforts to follow the law. It's apart from the law. Paul says, and yet the law and the prophets of the Old Testament testify to it. So they foretold that not only would God act righteously in order to save his people, but also that he would give his righteousness as a gift to his people. And what that means is that you and I don't have to earn right standing with God by being good. We can receive right standing with God by being forgiven. If I ask my child to tidy her room and she doesn't do it, then she is in the wrong with me. But if she then says, sorry, and I forgive her, then she is in the right with me again. And if I then tidy her room for her, then everything's good and right. Now you think you would be spoiling her. Uh, and of course you'd be right. But when it comes to us and God, that's what grace means. That's the whole point. That's what God is offering to do for us. And we could not do it ourselves. We couldn't get ourselves in his good books and we couldn't tidy our rooms either. We have no hope any other way. We had to have him do it for us. Uh, as it says, the gift of God's righteousness comes to us through Jesus Christ and it's received by faith to all who believe. Now that means it doesn't come to everybody automatically. Um, God doesn't just forgive everybody without people knowing they're forgiven. You have to believe, you have to trust in Jesus, which means humbly asking for forgiveness and consciously receiving that forgiveness 
and then actively trusting in Jesus in your life. But fundamentally, righteousness is a gift. And faith is simply trusting that gift. It's not something we do to deserve it. In fact, if you have been resisting a decision to put your trust in Jesus, uh, and if you were to choose today to put your trust in him and receive that gift of forgiveness and God's righteousness, then today you would be 100% righteous before God. It's not like you would start a journey and you'd be 10% today and maybe 20% tomorrow, and if you really lift your game in terms of faith, then next year you could be at 70%. No, you put your trust in Jesus, you are 100% righteous right now before God. It's because it's not about deserving, it's a gift that you simply receive. The passage goes on in verse 22, it says, There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace. That's talking about all who believe. It's saying it doesn't matter where you were before you believed. Uh, you might have been a million miles away. You might have been quite close. It doesn't matter beforehand. We all sinned and fall sh fell short of the glory of God. None of us was the way God meant us to be. But we all received God's righteousness for free when we believed. So the game has changed. It's no longer a matter of trying to make yourself right with God. It's now a matter of trusting Jesus to make you right with God. Uh, there's a hymn that says, Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Mid flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Very similar to the, the song that we just sung about being dressed in, in his righteousness. And so as we stand before God now, and when we stand before God on Judgment Day, mid flaming worlds, when everything is coming to an end and everything is being renewed, if we try to dress ourselves in our own righteousness, self-made, then we are going to look pathetic on Judgment Day. We'll be covered in dirty, patchy, thin, scratchy scraps of virtue that we've been able to put together for ourselves. Look at the way I went to church on Sundays and look at the old lady I helped across the road or whatever. But if we receive the righteousness of God in Christ, then we'll be covered in his purity and his beauty and his glory as we stand before God, uh, even as you are now, if you're a Christian. But it's good for us to understand how this works and to appreciate it all the more. How is it that God can give righteousness to sinners like you and me? Uh, verses 24 and 25 describe that, describe the channel of God's righteousness, which is Jesus. Uh, the language that's being used in this passage, the language of righteousness and justice and guilt and innocence and justification, which means being declared righteous or acquitted, all of that is courtroom language. It envisages us standing before God as a judge. Uh, when it says that believers are justified freely by his grace, it implies that somehow the judge has found a way to acquit us even though we are guilty. How on earth does that work? Well, elsewhere, Paul ex explains that it's a great exchange. It's an exchange of our guilt for Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he takes our sin, he's punished for it on the cross, we get his righteousness 
and we are right with God because our sins are paid for. It's an exchange. Uh, But Paul uses other kinds of language, other than legal language, to describe that here too, to help us understand. Firstly, there's slave market language in verse 24. He says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Slaves could only be set free or redeemed at a price. Uh, A ransom needed to be paid to buy them out of slavery. We were slaves to sin. We were stuck in sin. But the death of Jesus was the ransom price that God paid to set us free from our sin and our predicament. So there's uh, market language. Then there is temple language in verse 25. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The picture there is of people who have angered their God. They've disobeyed and displeased him. They face his wrath or his anger. And only an adequate sacrifice can appease their God's anger. Now, in this case, who was it that made that sacrifice to appease the anger of God, according to Paul? Well, verse 25, it was God who presented Christ. God appeased his own anger at our sin. And so when we're told that we need to trust Jesus for the gift of God's righteousness, this is what we trust him to have done. He's taken our guilt on himself so we can be acquitted. He's paid our ransom so we can be set free. He's shed his blood so that we no longer face the anger of God. And this is all pointing towards the cross as the place where the gift of righteousness is given to us, where it's all happened. That's where we meet Jesus. That's where we trust Jesus and receive God's righteousness. And that cross is also the place where we look at what what God did there and we see God acting righteously. It's not just where he gives us his righteousness, it's where we see how righteous God is. And so Paul uh, mentions the evidence of God's righteousness in verses 25 and 26. Uh, The cross resolves the tension of how God can save sinners. We couldn't save ourselves, only God could save us. But how could God serve both mercy and justice? If he's a judge, how can he acquit us, the guilty? In talking about the cross, it says in verse 25 and 26, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So there are two questions that are resolved there. The question from the past was, what did God do with the sins of the Old Testament believers? Uh, He overlooked them, obviously. He didn't punish them on the spot as much as they deserved. Uh, He overlooked them. So what about justice? Well, we're told here that he wasn't forgetting those sins. In his forbearance, he was waiting patiently for the cross to happen where the sins of the Old Testament faithful would be paid for. I, uh, I forgive you now because I know that in the future your sins are going to be paid for when my son dies on the cross. And in the present, the tension is, well, how can God be just at the same time as taking the guilty and calling them righteous? Well, that tension's resolved because at the cross, God himself paid for our sins. He forgave our sins at his own cost. 
So he satisfied his justice and his mercy at the same time. The point is that God has done what we could never do for ourselves. He has put us in the right with himself, not on the basis of our, our merit, but on the basis of his mercy. And so God has changed the game. The game is no longer proving your own righteousness. The game is now trusting Jesus to give you righteousness. And that's very humbling and liberating and joyful. Like Joe was saying, it's by God, it's by God, it's by God. It's not always easy to remember that the game has changed. Um, we often default to assuming that we still have something to prove and we have to deserve it somehow. Um, if I'm going to say I go to heaven, then I've got to have something to prove that I deserve that or I don't have the right to say so. Um, as Christians, we believe in God's grace. We know that's a, a word we ought to be using, but the truth of our justification uh, that we're clothed in Christ's righteousness doesn't naturally sink in. We're always tempted to sort of adorn ourselves with a bit of our own righteousness. Uh, I was talking to a young woman recently who's very unsure about her relationship with God. Uh, she was feeling like she wasn't a very good Christian and she was wondering whether God actually might be punishing her for her weakness and her failures as a Christian, a very sensitive soul. Um, but I said to her, the first thing you need to sort out is your relationship with God and, and what it's based on. And as a Christian, your relationship with God is based on grace. If you're, you trust Jesus, then you are righteous. You are, you are in God's good books if you are in Christ. It's got nothing to do with your weaknesses and failures. It's hard for us to believe that sometimes because we, have, we carry our sins with us in some ways. Um, I was reading Genesis the other day and came across the bit where Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because he was their father's favourite. Um, and you remember the story. Uh, they thought they'd permanently gotten rid of Joseph. Uh, but years later, when something looked like it was going wrong, um, they said to one another, and ironically, Joseph overheard them saying this, God's punishing us for what we did to Joseph all those years ago. Isn't it interesting that they... They carried that crime on their conscience all those years and it was like they were just waiting for God to get them back for it. They knew they did the wrong thing. And of course, we all do that. We all have things in our past that we remember and we think, I did that and that's, how can that go away? Like it's always there and perhaps we're waiting for God to punish us. That's the power of the conscience. We carry these things around for years perhaps. And we assume that God holds those things against us, even if he says he doesn't. He probably still does. But we are forgetting that we are righteous in Christ. We are in the right with God. The Bible tells us so right here. He has set us free. He has dealt with his own anger. We are not under the gun anymore. Of course, the other side of the coin is, perhaps you might look at those around you and think, well, I'm doing better than them. I'm a better Christian than them. Um, so God's probably fairly pleased with me compared to all these other people. Uh, but notice that in the very next verse, verse 27, Paul says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. So none of us can, none of us can say that I'm not right with God because I'm too sinful. But on the other hand, none of us can say, well, I'm certainly right with God because I'm better than all those other sinners. If you appreciate that it is a gift from God and God has made you righteous rather than yourself, uh, then boasting is, is excluded and so is fear. 
if you understand that rightly. You don't become mates with God by being lovable and funny. You don't become mates with God by being religious and good. You become mates with God, if I can put it that way, by trusting Jesus who died to make sinners right with God for free. Uh, that is something that I think that we need to keep returning to over and over again. If you've been a Christian for 60 or 70 years, you still need this to soak into your conscience and to your soul uh, because it's not our default mode. We always like to make it all about us. Let's pray that God helps us to, uh, to understand and appreciate it properly now. Dear Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to do what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that when we put our trust in him, we are 100% righteous before you. We're right with you. We thank you, Lord, that uh, our sins are gone, uh, that we are dressed in the righteousness and the glory of Jesus when we belong to him. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that fully and so not be fearful and guilty, but neither be proud and self-righteous. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that the game has changed. We have nothing to prove. We have only to trust in Jesus. Thank you so much for that, Lord, um, because that is really what we needed. Uh, and we continue to need to appreciate that more and more. So help us with that. In Jesus' name. Amen.